0: Welcome to What is Wellness. I'm your host, Kristen O'Connor, and I have been a private chef for actors and athletes for the past 10 years, traveling uh, pretty much all over the globe, (laughs) helping them achieve um, specific health goals or body goals. And now I am on a quest to really discover what is wellness and hear from experts in all different areas of wellness, even the unexpected ones like astrology um, and psychology and uh, environmental sciences. And then, of course, the ones we would think of like naturopathic doctors, medical doctors, um, acupuncturists, Reiki specialists, and every single nook and cranny in the wellness space I could possibly find. Thanks for tuning in. Please subscribe and leave some comments. I'm so excited today to welcome Jessica Zappotechni, aka Jesse Zappo, a licensed creative arts therapist and performance coach. With a 20 year career in mental health, sports and the activism through art, Jessie combines her love of creativity and movement to build community and help people achieve personal transformation. She's the founder of a women's collective Girls Run New York City and currently co-leads the Adidas Runners New York City project. Jessie maintains a small private practice in art therapy and performance running for endurance athletes. She loves to paint and run ultra marathons in her free time. She is a total rock star, and I can't wait for you to hear what she has to share. Welcome, Jessie. It's so good to have you on What is Wellness. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, excited to
1: reconnect with you after all these years.
0: I know. So um, so Jessie and I actually went to NYU together and got our master's in art therapy, which a lot of people still, I think, don't really know what art therapy is. And you actually ended up pursuing it for a fairly long time, whereas I dabbled for a little bit and then veered in a very different direction. (laughs) Um, But do you want to just kind of recap what art therapy is and also kind of what you've been up to in the field? So I
1: think when you and I were studying at NYU, it was early 2000s and art therapy was still pretty foreign concept for a lot of people. There weren't a lot of jobs in the field. And I think I think we were really fortunate to be in New York City because in terms of places where people practice art therapy, New York City has definitely been on the forefront. And so the way that I would define art therapy maybe in 2003 versus right now, it's probably a little bit different, but I, I guess I would just say it's, you know, it's a way of helping people heal or find them their best selves through this therapeutic use of art making in a therapeutic relationship. So as an art therapist, a lot of the work that I did over, The last 15 plus years was with young people, teenagers and adolescents and some young adults. And it really was around developing another way of expressing yourself and understanding what's going on with yourself and using visual language and art making as a way of doing that in a space with a therapist. So, I'm sure you've had to define art therapy like hundreds of times. Whenever you mention it, people are curious and Yeah. Yeah, I think I I've probably defined it in a lot of different ways, but it's Well, I think it also flexes around the application
0: too. You know, when I left graduate school, I worked at I did two different jobs at the same time. I was working in an after school program funded by the American Red Cross after 9-11. And it was to just have a place, safe place for kids to go after school. And I was the only therapist for 150 kids. And yeah, (laughs) so you get paid literally pennies because it's a nonprofit and you're working with 150 kids and you know I'm five foot one. (laughs) And I had to literally like physically break up fights and all this stuff. So art therapy in that situation was, Really like what you're talking about, kind of getting these kids to be able to have a modality to express themselves and to really cope with and deal with a lot of emotions and contextualize them, you know, in a lot of situations that happen to a kid in New York city and what they're exposed to is, is a lot heavier and very difficult for them to process emotionally, given their psychological age, you know? Um, And then I was also working with women in an eating disorder clinic. Yeah. So very, very different applications. And there I mostly held groups and a lot of the eating disorder issues are about really being in touch with your body and learning how to be mindful and not being f- afraid of that. So it was really interesting because those were two totally different ways of applying it. But you
1: also are an active artist. It's interesting because as we're talking about it, I'm reflecting on how I even got into the field of art therapy and why it made sense to me. And I think part of it is that I had kind of a troubled childhood myself, in particular, at a moment of adolescence where um, my family became homeless and I was 15. And I found safety in this art classroom that I ended up in At the school that we had to go to because we had we had to move because we had lost our home, and so the teacher there was just she was not an art therapist by any means, but she I think recognized that I was pretty troubled at that time, and she just really pushed me into art making in in every way. Like she would sign me up for these extracurricular workshops outside of the classroom, and she would push me to be in art club. And I remember she drove me to a portfolio day. Like she was just like this driving force when I needed it. And I didn't know anything about what art therapy was up until I got my first job out of undergrad. And I went to art school. I ended up going to art school. So she was this pivotal person for me. And I went to art school and I... Got involved in some volunteering while I was there because I think for me, I love, love, love art making, but I always wanted to help other people too. Mm -hmm. And so I got involved in a, a program called the Prison Creative Arts Project when I was in undergrad. I think I was like 19 at the time. And we would go work with teens that were in juvenile detention. So I would go and I would teach art workshops with. Kids that were not that much younger than me, actually. And when I reflect on it, I'm like, I felt like I was so old, but I was like 19, That's and they right. were like 16, you know. Right. <laughs> um. But I remember I would go in. We'd bring our art supplies. We'd go into the residential facility where they were living, and we would just like teach them how to draw or like teach them how to paint or paper mache. We'd do all these different things. And then I remember someone's mom was like, Hey, maybe you should think about doing art therapy. And I was like, it it didn't even click to me at that time. Yeah. What we were doing was really a form of art therapy, which was like giving people these tools to have a safe space. Like you were saying, having a safe space. So I think that my journey definitely had a lot to do with my kind of childhood stuff and really being aware of the power of art making, not just for myself, but also I love the idea of being able to give that to other people.
0: Yeah. And you have, I mean, after graduate school, you continued working with youth programs in New York city. What was the specific area that you got into to continue supporting underserved youth?
1: It was interesting because like on that, that path when I was working with the PCAP, Prison Creative Arts Project, um, I worked with two professors at, at Michigan because I went to undergrad at Michigan and the they were partners. And one was working in the art school. She's actually a printmaker and her partner worked in um, the English department and they would often travel to New York City. And so when I graduated from undergrad, Janie, who was the printmaker, She got me my first job, which was working in a maximum security facility for teenagers in Detroit. So I was still living in Michigan at the time. And the job was to work in an art classroom, like co-teaching art with kids that were basically waiting to go to court. So kind of similar to here with Rikers Island, where... If you've been arrested, and they feel that you're at risk to yourself or the community. Before you even go to court, you end up waiting in jail, basically. And so it's a pretty messed up system. And so I was working in this maximum security facility in Detroit. And a maximum security facility that housed
0: teenagers, basically. Teenagers, like, yeah, 18 right, and under. <laughs> I can't even imagine what that. Must be like, and when you think about, sorry, this is slightly divergent. When you when you really think about a teenager, like they're still a child, yes, and obviously, like they're in this situation because of circumstance, yes, and now all of a sudden they're thrown into such a tough, I mean, tough is an understatement environment, and supposedly they have to just like be punished for their life circumstances and, you know, what they've just known for survival. And I can't even imagine. So what a gift to be able to have you and people like you who are passionate about cre- giving them a safe space. So, so sorry,
1: keep keep going. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's, it's so that's spot on. What has happened to young people who gotten pulled into the criminal justice system is terrible. And it's this whole system that many people are not aware of, but that is so prevalent for black and brown communities and then, and communities who are socioeconomically lesser. So in Detroit, in this space, and, you know, these kids also, they haven't been convicted yet. So they're, they're in an environment that's re-traumatizing. So they're being further traumatized in this space and they haven't even gone to court. So working in that environment, I just became really, you know, I think I've always been an activist, and I, but I became even more passionate about trying to make a difference in this like criminal justice system. So when I was working there, that's, that's when I knew I wanted to study art therapy because I saw just how powerful that art classroom was for these young people who were living in a state of trauma. And so... I came to New York to study art therapy. That's where you and I met. And and when I was here, I looked for something that was similar to that work because I knew I wanted to to continue to work on helping young people who were going through this system. And so I ended up, one of my internships was at Cases, which was basically I worked in the youth program, which was a alternative to incarceration program. I really spent 10, 10 years of my career working there at cases. And I think that, you know, the work I did there was really important to me. It was very much along the lines of giving young people a second chance. But I also saw a lot of things that I could not unsee about the criminal justice system in New York. And even like, our nonprofit working with the criminal justice system, there were still so many things that didn't sit well with me, like Mm -hmm. working in that environment.
0: And did that make you want to go off in your own direction or was it something that you just felt really like disempowered around?
1: I think part of it was that at that time, and I was there from like 2004 to 2014 towards The latter half of my time there, there was a trend where governing bodies wanted young people to be seeing psychiatrists and getting diagnosed in order to receive counseling services. And so working in this environment where a lot of young people are suffering things like PTSD, complex PTSD, just from their neighborhood and from what they've been exposed to. And then they've spent time in Rikers Island where they're further traumatized. Maybe they've been forced to take medication, which I heard many, many stories of. And then they're coming out of that system and there's this pressure, like something is wrong with them. They need to see a psychiatrist, should be diagnosed, get medication. And what I saw from that angle was we're now going to be labeling these young people who are 15, 16, 17 with a mental health disorder and forcing them to take medication, which I, you saw all the side effects of. And so I guess not really addressing
0: the fundamental, like underlying issue. It's really interesting. It's really interesting that you're saying this because it's bringing back all of the Thoughts and experiences that I had in this space too. And one of the things that I found so disenchanting was that one of my internships in graduate school was at Four Winds, and it's a Mm -hmm. lockdown, basically inpatient unit for children ages four to 12. And I wrote my thesis on one of the kids in there, and I called it Art Therapy and a Misdiagnosis. Basically, this child was 12, experienced trauma beyond comprehension in his life. I mean, I, I, I can't even begin. And he was diagnosed as early onset schizophrenia. When I started doing work with him in art therapy, we used art making materials first to get him to express some things that he couldn't put to words. And then we st- I started getting him to use art as a, a mediator to take on parts of his personality that were too difficult to really contextualize. And so he created these little superheroes and every time he held up the puppets of the superheroes, he could transform into something that he couldn't physically, he couldn't emotionally get to within himself yet. But it was like acting out that part of his personality, his psyche. And he really started coming out of this in some ways. And again, it was an internship. I was only there for nine months. So I had to leave and it was one of the most heartbreaking experiences because one of the biggest things that I heard there was like, "Oh, the kids will continue cycling through the system, and they—it's ju- not just kids; adults too. But it's um, this like potentially inching toward any type of recovery, and then it's medication. It's sending them back home without the proper support, without the proper bones and structure of how to heal and how to recover, and then they just come back again. And it's like, um, where?" where is the improvement? Money can be spent in a way to actually heal instead of just constantly putting all these
1: band-aids on that just fall off. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, like hearing your story, even it resonates, it's painful to think about the mental health system, which in my mind is, it's about illness. It's about how sick are people and labeling people as sick and maybe putting a Band-Aid on it, but not really. And not I, really, think, yeah. I think that's where my career kind of diverged. And unfortunately, and I actually got laid off. I probably would have stayed there longer because I was so passionate about this work because, you know, I just saw so many issues with how young people were being treated. And And then at the same time, there was all of this pressure to get more money through Medicaid or whatever. And so in order to do that, you've got to, like, people have to have a diagnosis and then they have to see a psychiatrist. And if they see the psychiatrist, then they have to be given medication. And to me, it felt the work we were doing prior was strengths-based. And this felt like such an illness model. And there, and also we we're just being pushed into using all these evaluations, and everything had to be like these evidence-based tests. And we're evaluating people for depression. And but the screening tool is created by Pfizer. So it's like, of course, everyone's gonna screen as depressed because they want you to take medication. So I could go on and on and on. Yeah,
0: I, I I totally understand. And I am also thinking as you're talking too about experiencing the same thing and how also once you're diagnosed with something there is an effect to that on your insurance and every, there's a ripple effect in your life there's this this stamp is a big deal it's not just something that can come and go and will wash away you know with the tides it stays and right. it has an impact on everything else in your life i agree i think you know part of why granted I, i'm not terribly proud of this i don't know how i feel about it but i I just felt like I couldn't do it. And what I wanted to do after working with the children and then the eating disorder patients, I wanted to start my own practice because I felt like that was the only way that I could have control outside of a system. And then there was all these regulations because this was back in, I don't know, 2007 or something. I don't even know when it was a long time ago. And so I ended up getting into cooking and my, but I have used art therapy with my clients from day one. I mean, not, I mean, not literally, but you know, at NYU, we study psychoanalytic theory and it's much more based in that. And so being able to apply that was great. And your path has also taken kind of two different roads and now you're merging them together. So this is kind of a happy shift, but your other passion is fitness and yes. running specifically. And I have so many questions to ask you around that, but let's just dive into how, when, when did running become an important part of your life and how did that transition into this huge thing
1: that you've built around running and coaching people? So to go even back to sort of the, the beginning of where I started on my art journey, I was an athlete my whole life and I ran track and field from 12 years old. I played volleyball, which I was very passionate about. And and I had some opportunities to go to college on like volleyball scholarship. I ended up choosing art school. And I think like one of the things that's really interesting is how I think maybe previously we were tracked to go one way or the other. Um, and you kind of had to like choose. Yeah. Now I think there's way more of an opportunity for people to be like multi-hyphenate, which is really cool. Um, At that time I was like, all right, well, I guess sports are over for me and I will now just go be an artist. You know, running was always something I did for myself. It's harder to get five people together to go play volleyball or, you know, like, and, and I wanted, you know, when you're playing competitively, you're also like, I don't want to just go play like not competitively. So (laughs) like that kind of like went to the wayside, but, but running, you don't need anybody. You don't need anything. You don't even really need any equipment. And so I always had running and I would do it throughout college just to clear my mind or like to feel my body or to stay in shape. And when I moved to New York and I was at NYU, I actually was also bartending to survive. So I I was working full-time and I was going to school full-time and I was interning and I was just like really burning the candle on both ends. I kind of lived close to Prospect Park in Brooklyn. So I would go to the park and I would just like run a loop. And that was what I did for myself. That was the only exercise I really got. Somewhere along the line, early on, one of the guys that would come into the place I was bartending at just mentioned to me that he was starting like a running club and he was like a nightlife guy. He was in no way seemed like an athlete (laughs) at all. Um, (laughs) which actually attracted me because I was like, cool. Like, I don't, I didn't see myself as a runner. I just ran. Right. Um, It was less
0: intimidating maybe.
1: Yeah, (laughs) totally. Like if he'd been like a serious hardcore runner, I would have been like me. No. Yeah. I'm not that good at it. I ended up showing up to this guy's like run group and, and it was so wild. It was really different. We ran around the neighborhoods of like Chinatown and downtown Brooklyn and we'd run through Williamsburg and we always were running over bridges. That was like my weekly thing that I did. And it was one time a week. It was like on Wednesdays. So, and it was nighttime. So I could fit it in after Like after interning and after school and after all that, it was, you know, 7 p.m. I could meet up with this group of people and then we would go run and then we would hang out after. It just became a really big part of my life alongside of, I think I was still in grad school at the time. So it was like alongside of all these other things, I always had running. Um, And then it just, it was funny because the more you get into something the more it becomes equal with the other things you're doing. And so absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like alongside of art therapy, I was also developing this kind of identity in the, what people call the urban running community as a, a leader in that space, but the two worlds were very separate for me. Right. Yeah. So, but
0: you're kind of about to merge them.
1: Yes, I, I have been merging them and I think what's been interesting is part of the journey for me was I it was almost like I had these two identities and one was Jessica Zappotechni art therapist and then I remember like when Facebook started. It's like it's so funny because I feel really old like thinking about this stuff because it was like before well, you look about 25, so things are
0: good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
1: you. But yeah, it was before Facebook that we were doing this stuff, and so like, yeah. I remember my sis, my little baby sister was like, "I'll help you start a Facebook account," and I was like, "Okay." So in starting the account, I was like, "All right, well, I just launched my career as an art therapist, and I really want to be taken seriously, so I'm gonna make my Facebook account my childhood nickname, which is Jesse's Zappo, so that." people don't find me. Like I, I didn't want professional people in my life to find me on Facebook. Yeah. Yep.
0: And I remember I, that being a big thing at the beginning of social media.
1: It was yeah. like, no, we
0: have to keep it totally separate. And now it's all become a necessary part of
1: our professional life. Exactly. But it was so interesting at that time, because I think we even talked about it in, in classes, which is like, you got to keep your personal life so separate. And I've been kind of like reading more about cognitive dissonance recently. And this idea of, you know, these separate ideas of yourself and how it feels really good to actually like integrate all the pieces of who you are. And I, I think that's another piece of working in like a psychotherapy space that sometimes didn't really resonate with me was that you're who you are is supposed to stay so separate of the work you're doing. Basically I was Jesse Zappo at night running and I was Jessica Zappo technique during the day, art therapist. And it, it felt very much, even my coworker was like, you're kind of like Clark Kent. (laughs) It's like, you come in here, like you ride your bike in here and your spandex and then (laughs) you go into your office and take it off and then you have your dress on and now you're the art therapist. And it really was like that. It was like these two identities. Right. Then with Instagram becoming a thing, I was using it only to talk about running. And I was, again, it was sort of like this separate piece of me that didn't bleed into my art therapy practice. And so I guess I'm a decent storyteller. So I just used Instagram a lot as an artistic medium for me, which I was- I mean, you're like, a
0: great, you're a great storyteller. You have a very unique Instagram. So let's not downplay- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. you are very accomplished and in a space that you created all for yourself. So I think that deserves a lot of recognition because it's true. You really you.
1: built that yourself. Thank you. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. And I, I also always looked at it as like, this was my art practice. And I'm, I'm sure you probably felt this maybe as an art therapist When you're helping other people make art all the time, your practice falls to the wayside or maybe becomes obsolete or suffers. And for me, I found that, you know, I actually really enjoyed taking photos, talking about it, like through social media. so, So my IG was always like very running centric. And, and I was sponsored by Nike for a number of years and actually work for Adidas now.
0: But (laughs) Um, that's so crazy. So how did they find you?
1: Um, well, so that initial running group that I was with was, it was very unique. It was super counterculture to what was happening in the running space in New York. And, and so it was sponsored by Nike and I worked with them through bridge it was called bridge runners i worked with them like 7 years i was just a big part of that community and did a lot of basically like my skill set as an art therapist really translates a lot into community building so all the work that i was doing with teenagers around group therapy and all of that group dynamics which really interested me that translated very well into like building communities through running. So, so I was basically like community builder in the running space and also like learned a lot about market, like experiential marketing just through doing that, you know, which is like, also, I think as a therapist, like when you're a people person, you're like hyper aware of what people's behaviors are, what they're thinking or what they need, or, you know, like being sensitive to that yeah. actually makes you really good at marketing. <laughs>
0: yeah. Cause you're very tapped in and you're it's very awesome.
1: sensitive and open. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. It's really Interesting because I've been writing a lot lately and I was writing yesterday about our need for interconnectedness and yeah. how COVID really made that abundantly clear for all of us who are, you know, I don't know necessarily me, but like a lot of people feel like they do, and I do feel like I do really well on my own. But you know, the need for community and the need for relationships, and how especially I think when we're talking about wellness and how to take care of ourselves best, finding those community. I think there's two huge points that you just you know tapped into. One is finding that community, and the other one is integrating yourself into a whole person that, you know, who you are through and through, and you're able to represent that. Yeah. And it's so it's actually, it sounds ridiculous, but it's so hard to actually do that. And I think when you have different areas of your life and outlets where you have this great community and support system, it sort of helps make that more possible. You know, you can really step into those parts of yourself in a bigger and broader way when you have those great support systems. I feel like there's so much of your life that is this external output all the time. You hearing your story and knowing you. And, you know, when you were growing up, you found this great outlet in art making and then immediately turned it around and said, you know, how, this is so great for me. How can I give it back to everyone else? And then did that through running and all of your passions are not only for you, but you've shared them extensively with other people. So what do you do for yourself? How do you stay well for
1: yourself in terms of food, emotional, all of that? I I think that's a great question. And during the pandemic, I became so aware of feeling pretty depleted. I think that there was a lot of emotional output. Like you, you said output and I was like, oh my God, yes. There's a lot of emotional output when you're a helper, a healer, a coach, an empath, all those things are what we are. And, and how do you like refill your own cup when that's the work you're doing? And 2019 had actually been a really amazing year for my career. I was working on a lot of very cool projects in the endurance sports space And traveling a lot. And at the same time I was depleting myself. It wasn't until everything kind of came to like a screeching halt that I realized. And I think that happens often when you're like constantly moving is that that first day of vacation or that first break, you're like sick. Um, (laughs) yeah, like that, that's where I was, but it was like more than sick. I was like, Whoa, I I don't even know what I have to give right now. And we're in like a really traumatic space. I spent a lot of time with myself, as many of us did. (laughs) I also was living alone. So it was really spending a lot of time by myself. I started running by myself again. And I was running also with a friend, but like almost every single day. And honestly, that practice of running alone, it brought me back to like, the importance of spending time alone too. I think running in itself is a very meditative place for me. It tends to be the time where I can have a thought and kind of meditate on it. And it can be like a little bit clearer. And it's also, you know, providing all these physiological benefits of more oxygen to my brain. And so having that daily running practice or even sometimes it would be walking i would go out and walk for several hours cuz we had all this time it was really important to me and i realized as a coach working in the endurance sports space that i have to have my own separate goals and training that's like just for me and i don't have and i don't share that <laughs> with someone else so so that's one meditation is really important to me i had been doing really good at starting my day with meditation for a while. Like when you're doing it, you feel good. You don't realize the effects of it, but it's when you fall, when you fall off and you feel terrible and then you're like, oh yeah, I guess it was doing something. (laughs) So like meditation has been important. I think food is also a factor for me and that eating foods that have like a high vibration. So like fresh fruits and vegetables are important. I tend to like to make things from scratch if I am making food and, and try to be mindful of how I'm fueling myself because, because I do run ultra marathons and I do things that, I mean, they require your nutrition to be on, point. Really on so, point.
0: Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you have to, you have to literally fuel your body. There are specifications around that. So when you're, when you're doing long form running and you're running 20
1: miles or training for a marathon, what do you eat in a day? You know, it's, it's funny because it's not as, it's not as many calories as you, as you would imagine, but it is about when you're eating and like what you're eating. So one of my favorite things is savory foods like Mm -hmm. on endurance runs. And a lot of times the food that is pushed to athletes is sugar. They're always pushing like sugar-based things because, because you know that you need carbs, you need carbohydrates
0: to replenish. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I just have a very difficult time stomaching that much sugar, especially if you're going to be out for like four or five hours. So I've found that like, I really love those Japanese rice balls that are like triangular. That's, yeah. that's rice got And like it has the cinnamon. nori on the
0: outside. Yeah. Yeah. You can sell that actually right by our class on, uh, on night. Do you remember that yeah. little Japanese?
1: Panya. Yeah. <laughs> I Is was it still there? there? I think so. I think so. Amazing. Yeah. So, so those are something that I really love. I've also like worked. So I work with a nutrition coach. She's on my team at Adidas Runners. And so she's always recipe developing for athletes. And so we've worked on some stuff and we made these trail bites that are basically like sweet potato and brown rice and miso. Um, and so it's like you're getting the carbs, but it's it's a savory bite. And, you know, that was really special to work with her on that because it was like unique to like my what I want and need. Right which felt good. So great. Yeah. So I I guess like in terms of like self-care, it's, it's a daily practice and like some days I do good and other days I don't. And I just try to, I'm trying to like be in the moment and do the best I can each day.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the important part and you touched on this, but I think being somebody who is an empath and is in, the giving space in terms of career. I mean, it is very, very difficult for people like that to turn inward and and ask the question, what do I need? I've been a private chef and I go on these really intense jobs and they're three months, six months, sometimes longer. And I'm working seven days a week and it's a constant all day long thing. And I find the same thing when those end, I feel literally like I've been holding my breath the entire yeah. time. And then I get inevitably get sick. And then I feel like I can't move for like a week. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, after I had the opposite, I think situation during COVID and everything that most people did, I worked the entire time, like wow. every day of the week for the whole time when that was really kind of over and that job was over, I felt so depleted that I realized I don't think I can really even do this anymore. Um, And it's not necessarily a bad thing to have these experiences that are like that. And that sort of empty you out to the point that you have to turn around and say, okay, like, where's my role in that? How, how am I like, you can't, you know, there's that expression that's like, so cliche and use all the time that you have to put your seatbelt on first before, the person next to you, but it's something that, you know, I think we have to remember and people who are in our types of roles have to really remember that you ultimately can't stretch yourself so thin that your life and like the happiness and joy and everything that you give to other people isn't turned back into you because that ultimately is going to wear you down to the point that you're not well, as much as your entire life is about wellness that's the number one thing, you know, you can't give to other people without giving to yourself. And it's so hard. It's so hard. What I find so interesting about you is that you have so many facets to your life and your areas of interest. And you've been on this journey that hasn't exactly been a straight shot, you know, and and granted, it feels like there's two, these two parallel things happening, but you are planning to start a private practice. Yes. What will that look like?
1: Now's actually a good time to talk about it because I think the point of integration where Jesse Zappo and Jessica Zappo Technique came together was when I left cases, I I ended up working for this high school in Brownsville. I was working through another nonprofit and I was an art therapist in the high school for four years on a grant. The ethos of that school was super community oriented and they were just like, people just... really showed up as who they were because one, I think teenagers needed that, but I think the administration of the school was like, we're in this together. We're fighting against these systems that are against us. And like, basically our job is to help get these students to graduate from high school, not drop out and then go to college. And And it was like this group effort. And I felt like everyone who worked there really showed up as themselves. And it was so nice to be in that space because that 10 years of being in this other space where you felt like you had to compartmentalize in the school, they were just like, come as you are and you have to give everything, (laughs) which was okay because I had just started working with Adidas women at the time. So I was working in the high schools, working with Adidas and I, I let them know, like, I was like, this is what I do. I'm a runner. Like my kids saw me on Instagram, you know, they find you anyways. Yes. (laughs) That's the world we're in. And so I was like, all right, cool. So then you can just know everything about me because you can see it. And, and it it felt really good to be in that space. One thing I know from running is when I've ran with people like pacing with people, they just share their whole life story with you. It just naturally happens. And I think the act of running like strips away a lot of the bullshit because it's, it's hard to Mm -hmm. do. And so it's really hard to keep a facade when you're out there doing the hardest thing you probably are doing the whole day. (laughs) Yes. So what I found always about running was that I was doing kind of therapy on the run anyways. Like I was just being this touch point for people And that people would show up to run with me because they wanted that experience of like sharing these miles, sharing what's going on with them. So I was like, all right, I'm basically, this is like a therapeutic space. So I always knew that I wanted to combine running and art therapy in a private practice. And so I've been like talking about this idea forever. I've been working on the idea forever I actually like branded it with a friend who has like a creative agency and, you know, created an identity for it, which is going to be called restorative running. The goal now is to really like roll that out. I think the world has also changed like from when I first wanted to do it, where I was like, this is a wild idea. And I don't know if people will be on board to like now, which is almost 10 years later. And I'm like, this is what everyone's doing. People are very in touch with mental health and wellness more so than they ever were before. And people are approaching therapeutic spaces or wellness spaces as if it's normal, which it wasn't before. So No, no, you're right. I think now is absolutely the time. For me, it's just taking that first step has always been kind of the scariest, which is like hanging your shingle out there and being like, all right, now I'm open for business. And beginning to work with people. And so I think the proof of concept is there. Like, I I know that it's going to be a really powerful opportunity to work with people. And so I've been working with a few, I've had a couple of clients that I've worked with individually that I started with in COVID and we've, we've been training them, but it's like, basically like training for life (laughs) And, and doing it in this sort of therapeutic space. So I think adding in the art therapy piece is going to be the next step for me, which I'm excited about. It's been a long work in progress, but I'm excited about it. I mean, it feels like you're there. It feels like you're, you're absolutely there.
0: And, you know, it's interesting because I've had like a thousand knee surgeries and they've been pretty dramatic. With each recovery, you know, sometimes I didn't walk for five months, like it was a lot. And in those periods uh, for the past 10, well, 12 years, lo- a long time that I've been doing that, those periods of rest, so to speak, have given my brain an opportunity to reevaluate what I want to do and where I'm putting my energy. And you said this earlier, but you know, where you put your energy actually increases kind of like the viability for that thing to be a bigger part of your life. And during COVID for a lot of people, it was that fourth quote unquote rest period where, you know, there wasn't the stimulation of regular day to day. And yes, it caused a lot more unrest. Anxiety and depression have gone up three to four times during COVID and people don't really have an outlet for that. So it's a, it's an interesting combination of the opportunity For rediscovery within yourself, because it's this moment of rest, but also that causes so much unrest in your own body. (laughs) So I think it's an absolutely amazing
1: time to start this up. Thank you. It's been really interesting, I guess, like the older I've gotten, just to really reflect on times where I've tried to force something to happen because I think this is what needs to happen. And then times where I've just been really aligned with what I should be doing. And then it doesn't feel like things are forced. And so I, I've had a lot of alignment that I've been aware of in the last five, six years. It feels really good to know that that's possible. So I'm always kind of like looking for what, what are the signs that I am aligned (laughs) with what I'm supposed to be doing? And like, what are the signs that I'm not Cause I feel like you start to learn the difference. You start to know what it feels like when you're on the right path. So definitely feels like the right time. I think it also has a lot to do with listening
0: to your body. You know, that's a big part of being well in my mind is being able to really fine tune what your body's telling you. And, you know, whether that's with food and really listening, instead of just like shoveling food and you like savory food over sweet, your body doesn't respond to it. Well, and you lean into that despite what the taste might be in terms of like, Oh, you know, chocolate's delicious. Well, it doesn't work well for your body and, you know, optimizing that for yourself, not just with food, but also with life and choices. And I totally agree. There were moments in my life. I mean, 12, 15 years ago, I pitched a cooking show to food network and thought, if this doesn't happen, I am like dead in the water. My career will never take off. And I was devastated. And it turns out that that wasn't the right thing for me. And it wasn't the right path. And the second, I just let that go and let go of, this is how my, this is how the process and the path will be towards the specific destination. Instead of, you know, now I kind of feel like, look, these are the things that I feel passionately about and where I want to put my energy and what feels Good to me, and what I can offer to other people. When, once you start tapping into that, then your life flows so much better, and I feel like you have bigger and more interesting opportunities that come about. I mean, I don't think that we're when we are in art therapy, you would have
1: thought, "Oh, I'm going to be really well known in the space of running." And no, not at all. And I and that's what's so interesting too, because sometimes I get people that reach out to me to ask me how they can do what I'm doing. Someone recently was like. I love sport. I ran D1 in college. Like I want to help people. Like how do I become a performance coach? Which is what I do. And it's so interesting because I can give you my story and I can tell you my path, but it's not a linear path. There's not a lot of linear paths when you're doing stuff like this type of work, even art therapy. I remember even being in art therapy school, our professors kind of being like, there's not really art therapy jobs. (laughs) I know. (laughs) You have to kind of figure out like where you fit in and I remember I was like
0: what I know but they told us that like the, do you remember they told us that like the last semester I remember sitting there and being like um the student loans are like ticking up really high right now and and now right. they're like 10% of graduates get full-time jobs I remember that statistic
1: yeah yeah <laughs> they're all like oh no Right. And and it was so interesting because it was like from day 1 you had to figure out how do I pitch myself and how do I find where I fit in and yeah in a lot of ways that was good and then in a lot of ways it was also kind of devastating because so many of our peers never even got to practice art therapy. So it's interesting to look when you look back the path kind of makes sense but yeah along the way in the, in the type of work that we do, there's not really a roadmap. So no, I know people ask me that too. Sometimes like, I'm like, honestly, if I had set
0: out to be a private chef in the space that I was, it never would have happened. Never. And you know, you have to just like, I mean, there's no better advice. You have to just put your energy into places where you feel fulfilled and excited and you wake up and want to do it. And once you do that and you start repeating that over and over again, you're, you're also reinforcing in your brain to say like, this is what, this is what fulfills me. And and it becomes a stronger and stronger purpose for you. Yeah. Um, Well, I love that. I'm excited to see where this goes for you, but
1: what is wellness to you, Jesse? Ooh, what is wellness? You know, I think wellness is when I think about, what it is that I try to do in running and in art therapy is helping an individual person show up for themselves as the best that they can that day. And that when you can show up for yourself and do the best for yourself, then you can take care of other people in your life and you can care about the community and you can care about the world. Um, and so I think wellness really starts with the individual and being the best version of yourself that in that moment. I think that's really beautiful and
0: very difficult to achieve. No, truly. I mean, it, sound, it sounds in a way so simple, but it, it is it's such an important reminder. To do the best that you can in every individual moment. By doing that, you are you're kind of reverberating out into the world that that care is so important. I think that's really amazing. Well, thanks, Jesse. I appreciate you being on today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. And where where does everybody find you? And you know, if there's anything that you wanted to
1: plug or talk about, honestly, I think. The most dynamic place to find me is uh, on my Instagram, which is at Jessie Zappo. I also founded and co-lead a group called Girls Run NYC, um, which is a women's project that I've had for six years, which is also fun. I'm sort of like daily updating my my IG because it's kind of like what I do. So if you want to know sort of the ins and outs of what's happening with me daily, you would find it there.
0: All right, great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in. Next up, we have Lila Wise, who is a holistic health coach. She believes in nutrient density and animal-based diets. Very interesting. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, like, and share. I really appreciate it. Have a great day and
1: be well.